Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Dave. And today's guest is incredible. It's Dr. Dance himself, Peter Lovett. He's a renowned psychologist and researcher specialising in the field of dance and movement. He was a professional dancer himself. He's author of the best-selling, international best-selling book called The Dance Cure. He's a renowned speaker and he really is inspiring in so many different ways. We've watched him speak where he gets thousands of people up dancing and uh, his own message his is... His story about overcoming kind of being a failure in school is phenomenal and it's so relevant to everyone. If you want to learn to move more and feel better and think different and think a little bit laddery, this podcast for you, it really will blow your mind. It's got loads of inspiring stories as well as little take-homes that you can do in your very day to apply and make your life that little bit better. And before we start, this week's podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're all we've worn for the last six years and they're for anyone who wants to incorporate more movement, more dance, more fluidity into the way they interact with the world. Yeah, your feet are the stability and the foundation of all your movement and studies have found that within 100 days your feet strength will improve by 60%. Uh, you can get 15% off your first pair with the code HAPPYPAIR15. Highly recommend them. Vivo Barefoot Shoes. HAPPYPAIR15 is the code for 15% off. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. Peter Lovett. Oh, I lo I'm loving your chairs. Wow, look at that. That's a great setup. Oh, yeah, and I, yeah. Have a little, I have a little... There's Daisy as well. Daisy, going to say hello? Oh... Uh... She's I've got Eddie here. downstairs. I should bring Eddie in and he could join you on the crew too. <laughs> I saw him. He's a cool black dog. Yeah, that's a black lab. Yeah. Right. yeah. Where, where are you living? You're living by a beach. Oh, we're living by the sea in North Norfolk. Oh, so, lovely. Uh, which is very nice indeed. Yeah. Is that up? Is that Anglesey. Up? That's near Norwich. Is that oh, right? yeah. No, it's not Anglesey. That's, oh. but, so basically, we're, you've got kind of London and then go diagonally right northeast onto east anglia to the bit that bumps out of the on the side ah, and yeah. we're on the top of there you speak my language when you say up to the right <laughs> the see, north that's so much more practical than you go northeast which one's east again? oh yeah, that one that one yeah yeah gotcha right. yeah i can't do that when people talk about the m25 going clockwise or anti-clockwise i haven't got a clue which way they're going i have to go right or left yeah yeah i'm, uh, I'm with you on yeah. that one you're a beautiful mover i saw a couple of vids there you move and it was like peter you, you still got it. it. still got it. Wow, thank you. Well, you guys are not bad. I don't know which one of you it was doing the, um, I love the gorilla move and the alligator move. And then oh, the, yeah, uh, yeah, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've loads of fun with that. Yeah, yeah we really like that, <laughs> that aspect of things. I movement. And, and I guess it's where does movement and dance cross over? Because I think there's some, like, it's words. It's just words around movement. Like, dance is a different word for different types of movement. Yeah, dance is basically just your heartbeat. If you've got a heartbeat, you're dancing. And then that's it. You know, so movement, I mean, and movement, really, I think the hardest question I was ever asked was, you know, what is dance? Now, of course, that's the easiest question to answer when you can look at dance and you can go, oh, there's dance. I can see it. But when you then take bits away and you go, well, what do you have to take away from dance for it not to be dance anymore? And you kind of go, well, actually, you've got to take away the heartbeat because that's the defining feature of movement. And movement represents life and life is dancing. So, yeah. So for me, it, dancing is just an expression of life. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Because I love to, uh, you gave the analogy once of a beard. Like if, if there's a man or a person, let's just say with a beard, for example, and you pluck away one hair by one by one by one, at what point is it a beard? And at what point is it not a beard? How do you tell? Yeah. And that's exactly the same with the definition of dancer movement. If you keep taking one hair away, at what point is it not dancing? And that's a really impossible question to answer. Yeah, well, well I, I, would, I would care to dive into that a tiny bit more because 
dance, there's something unstructured typically about dance. Whereas I think of traditional sports or exercise, there tends to be quite repetition or quite constraints on it. And now, obviously, there's freeform dance, but then there is a dancing to a specific pattern or choreography or whatnot. But I, that 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 is part of the understanding that I have of dance. Yeah, now those two definitions of dance are really interesting. They're, they're two different sides, aren't they? One is completely, you know, freeing, just letting your body move in a very natural way and on being stimulated by sounds that you hear or things that you see or or the sea or the waves or the trees being stimulated by those things is something that makes us move and dance which is absolutely fantastic but then we get into that thing of doing ballroom dancing for instance where you have to do a certain step at a certain time in a certain way perhaps with other people and it becomes much more constrained so in some ways dance is this extraordinary motor coordination activity where there's accuracy and definition and then also the freestyle movement is also dance too. And I think one of the things I struggle with is the notion, the reason people say they can't dance is because typically they've been told they're doing it wrong or they're not doing it right or they've got the wrong body shape or size to dance. And I think that's completely wrong. So shows like Strictly Come Dancing, um, I think are part of the problem with people not dancing in some ways because they you, you've given a score for dancing. And then also, let's, you know, the Olympics in Paris next year have got, hip-hop dancing in for the first time and then you think how do you score that how will that kill the genre of hip-hop dance by by making it so codified that it's possible to do better or worse than other people yeah it's comparison culture the epitome of it like it, portrayed into turning it into a competitive sport as opposed to the nature of it is its fluidity it's it's boundaryless it's Undefinable within reason, uh, and, yeah. and, I, and I guess I'd love to. I'd love to move into so so dance. Obviously, it's been your life. Well, it has been. It has been a serious chapter of your life, and a, a kind of almost a finding of yourself. Really, it's been the you know the the I don't know the fruiting the fruiting body of of your work anyway. And I just wondered in terms of um, in terms of mental health, in terms of the links, in terms of that. Like, I'd really love to understand that because like when I think of myself who grew up in, you know, we're 43, we grew up all boys, all boys schools, like boys don't dance. You only drank, dance when you were drunk. That, 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 that was all the associations. And most people who are listening kind of going, okay, dance, yeah, it sounds great, but like, I don't dance, I'm an adult, or I don't dance, I'm like, I've got kids, or I don't dance unless I'm drunk or at a wedding. And I'm just wondering, how does dance apply to everyday life? Or where does... Like, and this is back, we're kind of almost bringing it back to the other questions we just discussed. Oh, well, dance could be a, a central part of people's lives. I, th I think humans are born to dance. I think dance is a natural, innate activity. It's like eating. It's like mating. It's like lots of those other activities that we are born to do. It doesn't mean you have to do them. You have to eat, but you don't have to mate. But you, it's, it's, a, it's dancing is, is the equivalent of that. And it serves a whole range of functions. We think that when dancing, the reason dance is so ubiquitous and dance has been happening since the beginning of human time is because it serves certain functions. So it might, for instance, serve a function of bonding societies together. So bonding, you know, groups of people together in the way that we can think that dancing, you've spoken twice now about dancing at nightclubs or at weddings or something. Well, those are very much sort of traditional centres where people are coming together and joining together. You might find your mates there and you might bond with them in a certain way. You might be using your movement to find who your mate is. And there's a whole lot of science around that, which is fascinating. So dancing might serve certain evolutionary functions, which means that we keep doing it. But it also serves a social function as well. And it's those social functions that become judged and they lead to conditions where people say, oh, those things are not for me. Very often when people say, 
they don't dance. I've, I've spoken with groups of say, rugby players. I go, do you dance? And they go, no, we never dance. I go, never, no, we never dance. And then they went, yeah, but we do go to Blackpool every Friday night and we go clubbing. And I said, well, do you move to the music there? Well, yeah, of course we do. Yeah, of course we do that. But that's not what you're talking about, is it? And I go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. If you're dancing there, then you do dance. And they went, oh, well, in that case, we do dance. So there's something about the social definition of what a dancer is. And many people think they are not a dancer because they don't fit the, the socially prescribed definition of what a dancer is. But actually, when they hear some music, they groove away to themselves in their bedroom or in their sitting room or in their kitchen doing the washing up. They feel that groove when they're driving down the car listening to music. And that's dancing and that's grooving. So, yeah. I love watching you move. You're so cool. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. I find I'm being hypnotized. It's beautiful. For anyone who, who isn't seeing this live, Peter just is constantly in a fluid form of dance. It's beautiful. Very, very colourful. And and like I, w one bit I'd love to delve into it, like you're now a professor and a doctor of psychology and learning was something that was not natural to you. Learning, reading, writing was something you struggled with. And I think at one point you called yourself like a failure. I wonder if you could talk about this, because to many people listening who similarly struggle with reading, writing, kind of traditional learning. academia, learning, your story is hope. It's the salve to this this challenge of modern day living or modern day education anyway? Well, yeah, I wasn't very good at education. Um, when I went to school, so I'm now 58. And so I went to school in the 70s. And going to school in the 70s, you went and went to school. And I really struggled with the reading and writing side of, of, of that process. I couldn't read very effectively. I couldn't write very effectively. And because of all the teaching and learning was done in terms of reading and writing, then of course, I couldn't demonstrate any knowledge in that area. And I failed over and over and over again. And when you fail over and over again, constantly at school failing, you become a certified failure. You, you literally get certificates of failure from your school. And when that happens over and over again, it imprints onto you this notion that you are a failure, that you have failed. Everybody else can do it except you. There must be something really royally wrong with you because you couldn't do it. And that was the feeling I had. I hated school. I mean, I hated it. And I was a young man, I was at school, I, I had these dark clouds over my head. Um, I felt angry, frustrated. I hated the humiliation of not being able to engage in the learning in the way that other people seem to find really easy. And uh, I mean, there's no surprise, is there, that we know that people who struggle with reading and writing are more likely to engage in antisocial behavior. Um, they're more likely to have fewer friends than good readers and writers. They're less likely to get as many qualifications, and they are less likely to get the jobs that they want. And of course, that creates a whole set of, of feelings of frustration and, and you know negative cycles. We know about 20% of people leave school without being able to read and write effectively. Um, but we know our prisons, about 80% of people in our prisons can't read and write effectively. And so those two things are not, not coincidental. We know that people who can't read and write effectively are maybe more likely to engage in antisocial behaviour, which might lead to a range of other activities. I was very lucky that in my school, we had a school dance group, and the dance group was called Colour Supplement. And I'd always loved dancing for name. me. Dancing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's called Colour Supplement because it was the time when, before that, all the girls in the dance group used to have to wear black leotard and tights. And then in the 1970s, suddenly, a colourful lycra was available for dancers. And so all of the people in the colour supplement wore different coloured lycra outfits, you know, red, orange, blue. Exactly. It was that time, that, the really early 80s. And so I joined colour supplement and I had my cat suit and uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
and when I was in, when I went joined the dance group, it was just, I felt completely different. When I danced, my emotions were lifted. My relationships with other people were entirely different. You know, I felt good about myself. So my self-esteem was better and the world felt better. I could express my emotions and I just felt great. When I went back into the classroom again, I would have this dark cloud over the top of my head. I'd feel rubbish. I'd feel useless and da, 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 da. So I went on and, um, but it's quite tough when, when you're a kid, it, as you, you said, you guys went to a boys school where you, you don't dance. And well, in my comprehensive school, <laughs> the boys didn't dance either. So I got a bit of grief for that, but you take the grief. And then when I left school, I left school without any qualifications, but I was really lucky that I could dance. And I went off and I, I went to the Guildford School of Acting eventually and trained as a, as a dancer. And so I left GSA and went to work in professional theatre. And I loved that. I loved traveling around the world, being a dancer, doing different shows, going, ooh, ba, 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 ba. And it just felt the right, it, everything felt wonderful. But I still had this massive chip on my shoulder that I was thick, stupid, a failure, incapable of learning. And one day I was doing a show at the Richmond Theatre in London and I had this moment and there was a moment which changed my entire life. And the moment was, I realized that I wasn't stupid. Now, it might sound like a trivial moment, but that change of mindset where you know for certain that you are a failure and you are useless and you are incapable of learning. So that moment where you suddenly go, maybe I'm not. What if I'm not stupid? Right? And you go, what if I'm not stupid? And my what if I'm not stupid moment was I was doing this, this show, the Actors, you know, when you, when you do a show, I was we're doing Panto, so Aladdin, with Anita Dobson at the time. So Anita Dobson, she used to be in EastEnders, she was a big actress at the time. And um, you come and you do a two-week rehearsal period, and then the musicians come in, and they have their, their, their musical score with them. They're giving a musical score, and there's a musical director with them, and they spend two weeks playing all the music. And on the opening night of the show... They've got a conductor in the orchestra pit and they play their notes and they do it brilliantly. And that's fantastic. Well, the actors have to do something slightly more difficult. So the actors come in and they are on the book to start with and they read their lines from their book and they eventually put the book down and they memorize their lines. And for them, if they forget their lines, they've got somebody in prompt corner on the opening night and every night who could shout out the line to them and remind them what the next line is. That's great. Or dancers, we had to do something that was even more difficult than either of those. You come in and the choreographer goes, right, we have one of these, one of these, and a bum, 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 and you move your body, da, da, da. And you have to learn not just eight counts of movement or 16 counts of movement. You have to learn two hours of choreography. And you have to learn it without writing it down, without filming yourself. You just have to remember it. And then on the opening night of the show, you come out, and you're doing big movements, small movements, complex movements. You're lifting people up, putting them down. And there's no one to remind you what the next movement is. You just have to remember it. And I thought, crikey, what would happen if the musicians came on day one and they didn't have their musical notes? And the, and the musical director said, right, we're going to play. Right, you all play that. Or the, when the actors came in, let's imagine the director came in and said, right, your line is, but soft. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Okay, repeat that. And let's imagine they had to learn the whole script simply by listening to someone saying the lines. Well, this is what dancers have to do. And I thought, blimey, if I'm capable of learning that much choreography 
and remembering it and expressing it and maybe learning two or three shows worth of choreography, then I can't be stupid, maybe. And if I'm capable of learning that, surely I must be capable of learning how to read and write. So I thought, okay, I was in my early 20s. I thought I'll set about trying to overcome the reading, you know, my, my reading failure. And so that's what I did. I started to really slowly get into reading and trying to understand letter strings. And then when I could understand some letter strings, understanding the boundary of what I could and couldn't read, and then putting word strings together, understanding word strings, and then understanding meaning from those word strings. And there was lots of failure involved. And then I, when I cracked the first aspect of reading, I then took a, a, an A-level eventually in psychology and I um, I scraped a pass. I got a grade D in psychology. I was Woo-hoo. delighted with my D. Oh, yeah, honestly, I was. it was a d- d- delightful D. And then the next year, I applied for university and was rejected by all of them. And so the next year, I did an A-level in English, and I failed the A-level in English. <laughs> but by then, luckily, a university had given me a place to study psychology in English um, on, the, on my delightful D. And uh, <laughs> and then that was it. And then I went off and did a master's degree in neural computation, which is a mathematical modeling of brain functions, and then my PhD. And then after my PhD, which was an experimental cognitive psychology, I was then at Cambridge University. And when I arrived at Cambridge University, I was actually in the Faculty of English. And what was extraordinary about being at the Faculty of English at Cambridge, and my mum was very proud that I was there, and I was very proud to also be there as a postdoc, but I was still too embarrassed to tell them that I'd never passed an A-level in English and I'd failed O-level English half a dozen times and failed CSE English a number of times. And so the shame associated with being with perceiving yourself as being a failure hangs on and hangs on, even when externally other people go, okay, well, we, you're clearly not, you know, you're not a failure. None of us are failures. I mean, no one's a failure. It's ridiculous that we have a system where we can kill children get to the end of school and think of themselves as a failure. I think that's the every school which has a child who feels like a failure, the school should feel like a failure. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible adventure. Yeah. Your, your resilience is remarkable. You know, it really is. It's, it's astounding. That story is incredible. Well, I think sometimes you just have to be, um, you, you have to be a bit stupid to say to yourself, do you know what? I'm not going to stay in this current situation. I want to make, I want to make a change. Yeah. And, uh, very brave. Yeah, so. very brave. And I, I guess that that kind of leads me into, cause, cause we're quite similar and that we're very physical creatures. Like we move a lot. I'm, I'm not that good at sitting still. We weren't very good at the typical education system. You know, we managed to like, we're competitive. So we managed to apply ourselves and do reasonable at it, but we were never, it just was, we were fishes trying to climb the tree in that kind of analogy. And I just wondered like your experience with education and now you obviously like being a professor or being a, you know, working at Cambridge, um, like how, how can we make it more like, what are your thoughts on education and learning and how can we, because obviously there's the schooling system, but how we can take a broader view on education. Well, I suppose it's hard in education, isn't it? We have to find the individual and we have to be able to find the individual strengths and encourage them and to find something. I was very lucky that I had dancing and through dancing, I was able to use that as a scaffold or as a model of how to learn other stuff, which isn't as exciting as dancing. And if we can offer young people an opportunity to to do something, to be good at something, to find, to have a, a smorgasbord of opportunities where they can try different things out, which you're right, you know, fish can't climb a tree and not everyone's going to read the Iliad 
you know what I mean? It's so we need to find something that people can find a passion in, um, which is a really hard thing. It's it's a non non trivial task. When you've got very large class sizes, it can be difficult to find individual um, abilities. It's really funny as a cognitive psychologist. One of the um, one of the things I always struggled with with being a cognitive psychologist. Now, a cognitive psychologist tries to understand how the brain and how the mind works. So, for instance, you know, what is our model of language in our head? What's similar about my model of language, which is the same as your model of language? Or what's my model of memory in my brain? And how is that similar to your model? And we do all these experiments and we collect data from hundreds and hundreds of people. And then at the end of the day, we develop a theoretical model of how memory works in the human brain. So we might have you know, somebody called Badly who developed something called the working memory model. And we might have something called a phonological loop, which is a theoretical architecture in the brain. And then we try to make think everybody fits into that model. And we go, well, here's a model that everybody thinks in the same way. But actually, when you look at the data, you find actually there are some lots of people, maybe the majority fit into that model and they process information in that way. But there are a large number of people at either end of the tail who don't process information in the same way. They process information differently. And the way they process information doesn't fit this average model. And I think what we have, we have a, a theoretical model of education which says, here's our theoretical model of, of education. And then we try to fit the majority into that. And we go, okay, well, it works for the majority. That's fine. But actually, there are people at either end of the system for whom it doesn't quite work. Mm. Um, I was, I was, I've got a 10-year-old son, and I was slightly irritated by his school last year because my 10-year-old called Romeo, um, and uh, he wasn't really kind of getting on with one of his subjects. And the teacher said, oh, he's obviously not a school-shaped child. And I wanted to say, well, are you telling me that as a school, you're not a child-shaped school then? Is that the issue? Ooh, good, the, Ron. You had that again. Yeah. You're just Well, they kind of looked at me like... With, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they wasn't to blame the child. They, they yeah, wanted yeah, to say, well, it's a child issue. He's not a, a, a school-shaped child. And I think, no, I don't want a school-shaped child. I want a Romeo-shaped child. And I, you know, if he goes to your school, I want you to educate him or provide an education that fits into him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so hard to customize it. Like it really is. What a challenge! Because when I think when I when I'd romanticize about what I might have, if I was dreaming of an ideal way of learning, we would have been in cars, taking apart engines. I would have been learning to build and how to plumb or how to like. It would have been practical, physical sew stuff. And, knit. and then when I was tired, then I could probably sit and you know absorb something. But there was too much energy, too much pent up energy and curiosities to sit in a classroom. And I think that leads into natural kind of segue into talking about the importance of movement through education, through performance, through work, through just the importance of movement for the human wellness. I wonder if we could talk about that because you're a master of this. Well, so the movement for human wellness is really interesting, isn't it? Because we know that the way people move changes the way that they think and solve problems. And very often problem solving is, and learning are related to one another. So that we know, so intuitively we know that if we're sat at a desk working all day long, Sometimes we need to get off our chairs and go for a walk to help free up our mind a little bit. But actually, the way we move our body changes the way that we think and solve problems. And of course, that can be really useful in learning, whether you're learning English, maths, physics, whether you're learning history or geography or, or engineering, introducing movement into that can really help. Now, of course, that also then ties into mental well-being as well, because we know that the way people move their body can help them change their mental well-being. And it changes their mental well-being well, through a whole range of processes. But we know in terms of social engagement, people's relationships change with other people when they move their body in different ways. And we know it changes the way that you think. 
Now, a lot of things to do with mental well-being are us getting stuck in these set patterns of negative thinking. If you think what CBT is all about, trying to help people break away from some of those negative patterns of thinking, we know that movement can help people do that. We can we know that movement can help people break away from those patterns. We know that movement also helps us express emotion as well. Um, and of course, you know, you're pent up emotion and you feel like kind of rah, whatever the emotion is, whether it's anger, whether it's love, whether it's lust, whether it's you know, happiness, we shouldn't be holding on to that emotion. We should be allowed to wag our, our tail like a dog to express our emotion very freely. But our society doesn't tend to allow us to do that. It wants to constrict our movement and therefore we constrict our emotions, we constrict our thinking and we constrict our social engagement. Yeah, we often think ourselves of, as octopuses. Octopuses, I think, have seven brains, brains or eight, because they have eight tentacles, don't they? I'm not sure. Anyway, let, let's just say they have a number of tentacles and they have to move to get blood to each of their brains. Uh, and I think sometimes myself and Dave, who are a bit restless, we feel we think best when we move. And it's this movement that allows different concepts to come together to kind of go, oh, I got a good thought. Mm. Uh, we, we've, we've studied that to some extent in the, in the laboratory, in the university. And it's certainly the case that different styles of movement can encourage creative thinking. And so that creative thinking of, of divergent thinking, whereas a thinking where there's not one right answer to a problem, there might be a hundred correct answers to a problem. And a movement facilitates those. It helps you to jump from one path to another to help you be more fluent in your, in your thoughts. And that creativity, those sparks of, aha, those, those movements often come when you're moving. The movement is really important. So therefore, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could create a society from an education point of view, from a workplace point of view, and from a healthcare point of view, where we introduce movement, introduce more movement, a greater variety of movement into those different environments, and then see how people think differently. So we're trying to do that at the moment in workplaces, looking at employee wellbeing programs, um, and not only for the sake of the individual's well-being, but also for the product of that well-being, the creativity, the diversity, the thinking differently, the entrepreneurialism. I mean, all of those things uh, are improved when we move our body, improve our well-being, and then the product of that is improved too. It's it's so true, because because and, and I wonder, this is more, I'm thinking kind of we've evolved over millions of years where movement was just baked into our society. And now over the last, I don't know, since the Industrial Revolution, certainly my lifetime, there's been less and less movement. You know, society's become a lot more comfortable, a lot more sitting down. And when we move, we move in very organised, structured ways. People go to the gym and they exercise and there isn't that diversity of movement. And I wonder, is this is this affecting the, our creative? Like, obviously we create and we're hyper-creative as a species and we're growing, expanding, but our movement patterns have changed from what how I would understand, you know, like life demanded a lot more movement 100 years ago. Whereas today, a lot of people go to the gym and that's their movement or they go to yoga or whatever whereas it was just baked into life life and movement was one flow and it was as you said a heartbeat dance was just a part of life and i wonder yeah. what are your thoughts on that oh yeah i would wouldn't it be wonderful if we could strip back some of those ways of restricting movement and some of that is about encouraging people to move differently so they move their bodies differently they move different body bits in different ways um but we have this very kind of of functional movement patterns so our functional movement patterns is you only move enough to fulfill the action you're trying to do. So if you could watch somebody in a restaurant like McDonald's doing their, their normal thing, they're just doing the minimum level of movement that's required to do that particular task. And of course, then we get, we get ill, we get sick. And this isn't recently known. This has been known for centuries, that the, the maladies of certain workplace, workplace maladies, um, 
So when people do repetitive movements over and over again, they develop physical and mental maladies as a consequence of doing those repetitive movements over and over again. And our society is closing that down even more now. And what we need to do is become better at showing a range of movements so that we can, you know, then let's imagine you're in on, on, a, on an aeroplane and you're serving coffee as you're going down the aisle or a train. Well, what if you put a shoulder roll into that, for instance? Or you could, you could put your arms up and swim backwards as you're walking. Or if you walk down the street to work in the morning, <laughs> rather than just kind of walking down the street, what would happen if you walked from side to side a little bit? And rather than just walking one direction, you could go step, 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 or change, step, 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 or change. And you could step to the side, da, da, ba, da, ba, and just vary it up. All these things would be wonderful and it would make people smile as well. It ma- makes me think and of Austin Powers. Like that's what I think of when you're saying it, like the way he kind of danced down the road, if anyone remembers that movie. And I think a huge part of that is permission, social permission. How do we create social allowance or permission for people to do it? Because a huge part of it is permission. Like I-, I was watching one of your TED Talks earlier where you must have had a thousand people up dancing in an auditorium and it was incredible to see. And they they... They trusted you, believed you, and you created this safe space that they weren't going to be judged. And maybe it's because they were standing side by side. But how as a society do we create more permission for people to move a little more fluid and to go beyond that self-conscious kind of like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Because it's almost like a shell that's containing our expressive nature. Yeah, well, it is. You're absolutely right. We have this kind of social anxiety and we think there are social rules. What's really interesting about those talks that I've given if ever I do a talk and the audience know that they're going to dance, they universally say beforehand, I'm not going to dance, I'm not going to dance, there's no way I'm going to get up and do this. And by the end, they are dancing. Voluntarily, they're getting up by themselves, they're wanting it. Loving and it. enjoying it, which is just wonderful to see. I've got, honestly, the best job in the world because I get to stand in front of these thousands of people and see their faces light up like because poof, 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 poof. They like, like these big searchlights, each one. They go, wow, the energy coming off is extraordinary. And of course... All we, we have to give people permission to move. So therefore, we have to demonstrate sometimes. We have to demonstrate that permission. You know, why have we got to a point where we are so uptight about movement? You know, we're so afraid to move, to vary our movements. People wouldn't even notice if we made little tiny variations in our movement patterns. Yeah, with your head just there, that little tiny side, oh yeah, as, as they're going along. And I bet when you do that walking down, down the street with a bit of a shoulder on, you catch somebody's eye, they will smile. And it might relax them enough to do that. Yeah, I think we've got this situation where we've got coffee shops all over the place. We've got millions of coffee shops absolutely everywhere. And there are more places to drink coffee than there are to move freely. And what we need to do is to inject free movement back into our social surroundings again. So, you know, we've all seen the research of walkabilities. So the walkability index in a town, you know, an environment that has a higher level of walkability has higher levels of well-being and prosperity within those areas. Um, what was well, there's a groove index? Wouldn't it be great <laughs> if we could we could generate a groove index that every workplace could have a boogie box, and in a boogie box in a in a, in a work environment, you could go into this boogie box, play some music, see something on you know in front of you in a big video screen, and just move freely. Wouldn't it be amazing to move our body completely free, shake it out, and then come back into the real world again, and then but bring some of that energy and groove into the real world? So we need to demonstrate to people movement is allowed and nothing bad will happen if you move in a slightly different way. 
In fact, something good will happen. Because yeah. it massively de-stresses you. It massively releases chemicals in your brain. And I know myself, even from our brother's a DJ and we'll go to his dance nights quite often because he'll start them early enough and we'll go along and we'll dance away. And I notice this deep connection with others that are dancing. Like I'll start and I'll feel a little self-conscious and then I'll get warmed up. And then suddenly I'll just reach this place where I, I, I don't know what's happening. My body is just alive and it's just, it's in flow and I just... I lose myself to the music and then I look around me and the connection, that sense of connection or union or euphoria, you reach these places which are just glorious. Well, there's a, a team of researchers at, at Oxford University who've studied exactly that. They looked at moving in synchrony and what happens when you move in synchrony. And so they, they set up these experiments where people were moving either in synchrony or out of synchrony. And what they found was that those people who were strangers to one another moved together in synchrony then it increased the opioid production um, in, in their brain. And they measured this by looking at pain thresholds. And what they found was that people's pain thresholds who moved together in synchrony went up. But they also looked at social closeness. And what they found also was that those people who'd been moving together in synchrony also showed higher levels of social closeness to one another. So those two things that you feel when you go to a, a DJ set, you're in a club and you you know, you feel that sense of euphoria. You get that, that yeah, natural high. It is the most natural high, which is extraordinary. And also you suddenly around you are connected with the people around you. Now, another set of researchers looked at what happens when you move together. They found four things that change. They found that when you move together with other people, you report liking each other more. Secondly, you report trusting them more. The third thing was that people felt more psychologically similar to one another in terms of their values and goals. And the fourth thing is that people were more likely to show pro-social behaviour when they moved together in synchrony with other people. So this all this suggests that shared movement forms the basis of a social glue that bonds people together. And it's such a valuable thing. So yeah, the high we get from that, I, mean, I remember that I used to go to nightclubs when I was 16, 17, 18, 19. And oh my word, I didn't drink then. And I would just get the biggest high and I would dance and I connect with people. And it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary experience, which I wish I could still get now in my late 50s. Wow. I wonder is it the same in like a yoga class or a Pilates class? Because people tend to do the same repetitive pattern. Like obviously it's less vigorous and there's less pulsing music. But and there's the rhythm, is. The ry with the likes of yoga, these kind of breath-led things, there's breath is the combined rhythm of what you're, what you're following. And I, maybe that's, and that kind of makes me kind of wonder, like if I look at kind of dance, I, I was watching uh, Pride and Prejudice the other day and I love that movie. And there was one scene where they're all dancing and the dance is very much formulaic and they do it together. It's everyone, it's like a collective dance, like a Kaylee or something like this. Yeah. Where the, the steps everyone is doing, whereas I look at modern day dance in a nightclub, it's very individualistic. It's less collective cohesive. I wonder is there, where was society back there more coordinated, more unified? And nowadays are we living in a more individualistic society because the dance reflects that or am I just going way off there? No, no, you're not way off at all, but there's, there are slight differences. So we are still coordinated. So let's imagine your brother's a DJ and he's playing this music. And let's imagine us three are all grooving. We think we're grooving independently to this one groove, but actually we're all synchronizing on the same beat. Now we've done some research. We did something for Radio 3 years ago where we looked at, at the way movements moved around a nightclub floor. So we hid ourselves upstairs in the top of a nightclub so we could see the dance floor. We could see who started after dancing and we could see eventually there was a sea of people 
eight, nine hundred people dancing on the dance floor. And then we could watch movement patterns move around. So what would happening is I'd be dancing and then you might pick up an essence of my movement and you'd pass it on to the next person. They they see you and they they pick up that movement and then they will travel around. So we are synchronized in that way. We might think that a nightclub is full of a thousand individuals dancing to their own beat, but actually they're not. They're dancing to the shared beat and they're feeding off one another in terms of the rhythm and timing and the types of movements that they're doing. It's an amazing way. It's an amazing way of communicating, isn't it? Because ultimately, like there must be so much subtle because I I think of it. I think of at the start of a nightclub when people are dancing and everyone's a little bit in their head. And then it reaches this place where almost there's like, boom, we've reached this happy place. And maybe it's just in my own head and I'm just projecting outwards. But it seems like, okay, we've reached this sense of acceptance. The pheromones or the chemicals or the endorphins in the room have shifted. And it seems like anyone who comes along cold will go, wow, this place is alive. It feels so open and vibrant and people can feel it. Yes, oh, you can definitely feel it. But that thing also, DJs, really skilled DJs, time the music, the beats per minute. And there's a strong coordination with the speed of the beats per minute of the music. And then the average heart rates of, of the age of people who are dancing there. There's a coordination between those two things. So there's a connection between us, our biology, and the rhythm of the music and the beat and the other people around us. So we do start having this kind of mass behavior. And of course, it becomes like, like the, the was it 15, 18 dancing plagues where people suddenly were dancing and dancing and dancing for days and days and days, getting into a trance-like state. And you feel that. Now, when we go back to this idea when you get a trance-like state in a club and you're dancing and the music's there and the, oh my word, the chemicals, are, everything's driving you. It's extraordinary. All those worries disappear. disappear. You, you forget about the mortgage rate. You forget about <laughs> exams. You forget about you know, whether you'll have a job next week. You lose yourself in this music. And that old Sister Sledge, the music track, you're lost in music. The lyrics of that and this essence of that being lost in music is really true when we start moving to music. And of course, this might be underpinning some of the health benefits we see from dance, that ability to escape of the daily worries. You know? yeah. oh, Vogue, Madonna's song as well, Vogue. Forgetting about the worries of being on the dance floor. Listen to the lyrics of Madonna. It's it's, it's all there. Such truth in it, and I think that kind of leads me naturally on to like dancing and mating, because I think that's such a you know like that. I think was it Oscar Wilde who said something about um, dancing is the horizontal what we want to do vertically or something around that. I'm totally judging. I'm sure you sex know it much is, better. Sex is it's something like that dancing is permission to have sex with your clothes on, something around that type of thing. But basically, well, it's the, the vertical expression of a horizontal desire. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you're, you're done. Now, that's true. Well, what's been fascinating about that research has been looking at the relationship between um, dancing and mate selection. And, um, of course, George Bernard Shaw you know, said, said that. And then Charles Darwin argued that dance forms part of the human mate selection process. And there's some great research looking at the way people move and how they communicate their hormones and their genes through the way that they move to other people. So it's seen as that. Now, the studies are fascinating because you can film people dancing in a nightclub setting and then you can measure their hormone levels. And there's a relationship between their hormone levels or their genes and the way they move their bodies. But what's even more extraordinary is that the people watching them dance are then influenced by those things too. So we know that, that for instance, females who might be at the more fertile stage of their, their monthly cycle dance differently to women 
who are um, at the less fertile stage of their cycle. And what's extraordinary is when other people watch them dance, they make judgments about them, which are highly correlated with, with that, uh, their fertility levels. So the idea of fertility and movement, and then the communication of that, how we communicate those movements and how other people perceive us based on those movements is absolutely fascinating. Now, we shouldn't be that surprised because it's quite animalistic, isn't it? We, we are these sort of animals ourselves. Um, but dance might form part of the human mate selection process. And this is why some people get so intimidated by dancing because they're literally showing their insides. They're showing their constitution to other people. And no wonder people go, actually, do you know what? I don't want to dance. Thank you very much because I don't want to show you my hormones and my genes. Thank you. I've been naked. That's incredible. I, I met my wife out dancing and it was similarly, I was, we were going to, I was doing, we were doing food at an, at an event. We were kind of serving salads. And I remember I, to the person working with me, he was like, oh, I don't want to dance. I'm not into this type of stuff. And then I saw this girl dance and was like, just go dance one song. And I ended up dancing all night, uh, chasing my mate to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then did you stop dancing after that? Uh, I don't mean on that night, but once you got together with your mate, did, did you? Uh, do we dance anymore together? I guess it's more of the not the horizontal the vert the horizontal dance yeah. Oh. Hey. 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 <laughs> Sorry, excuse that. <laughs> no, th- those differences in dancing are really important, aren't they? Because people often go that they'll when we ask people about their dance history, they'll say, "Oh yeah, I danced and I met my my partner. We got married and we dance, you know, socially, but we don't really dance as much anymore. We stopped going night clubbing anymore." So you've almost kind of fulfilled one of those needs, and that can often lead to a great hole in people's lives. Because they still want to dance, but they they found a mate, and it's like, well, what can I? I kind of, I found with my wife that I um, we also met, we we met and married very very quickly, and um, and we went to a club called the Limelight in Shaftesbury Avenue in London, and uh, and she thought I fancied her friend, and uh, so Lindsay just went off. We don't just met, and I went to the bar to get some drinks, and I turned around. I didn't fancy Lindsay at all, at all, at all. I really didn't fancy her at all. And then I turned around and I saw her standing on a podium in the middle of the nightclub dancing. She thought I fancied her friend, so she said, I'm just going to get on this podium and dance. And she did. And I turned around and I saw this person moving. And then I realised it was her. And like you, I was transfixed. And I proposed to her a few weeks later. We've been married for over 30 years. But what I found when Lindsay and I used to go clubbing after that, I found really, I felt really locked in. I felt I couldn't groove to my full extent. Because I, I got a mate. I was married. You know, some of the old habits of, of dancing and communicating and seeing and looking around, th- th- those things were closing in and it felt really awkward. I was feeling almost as if it was an act of being unfaithful to dance in the way that I used to dance. Wow, I, mean, I get it. And then do you do, do you do more kind of organised, like I'm just thinking of couple dances, if it's not going to nightclubs or going out dancing in that freeway, do, have you tried going doing the likes of like, you know, salsa or some all those other types of dance yeah. well we did yeah i tried going i think I, I i struggled with going to salsa classes because you have to swap partners don't you every kind of couple of beats you have to swap partners and go go round. and i i was less comfortable doing doing that so Lindsay and i then eventually went to uh we went to ballroom dancing classes together and uh and so that was interesting but it was funny because I before that, before Lindsay and I decided to do ballroom together, I thought I'd try and find a ballroom dance partner. And blimey, that's like a dating thing. All <laughs> there are these there websites where you find a, a ballroom dancing partner. So I, I've been married. I'm very happy. I'm not looking for a mate or anything. I'm just wondering a dance partner. Oh, my word. I had these psychological. So one, um, 
I, I found one, and then she said to me, oh, you, here's my phone number. You can phone me on here. And so I phoned her up, and it was another woman. And she said, oh, yes, I'll, I'll, get, get, I'll send a message to her to give to you. And when we finally met to dance, she said, oh, I haven't given you my proper number because my husband would be really upset if he knew we were dancing together. And, and it was this really weird dynamic between us. And I thought, well, I can't quite be doing with this. And, uh, and then another woman who I drove for two hours to meet this woman to dance, right? And we all knew each other's dance history. Everything was fine. We'd seen photographs of each other. And we got, I drove for two hours to this dance studio and I met her. She was there with her coach and we took a hold and I saw the coach just shake his head, a really gentle shake of his head. And she stood away and said, thank you very much. No. And it was like, oh, my word, I've been rejected. <laughs> I was obviously not good looking enough for her or something. And I was, and I drove home for another two hours. I was literally there for 10 minutes. And we we took a hold for 30 seconds, if that, that, that was my, my assessment. And then another woman I met. And you have to be in the same age category as each other to, for these competitions. You have to be in the same age group to compete together. And I met this woman. She said, oh, can we meet in a coffee shop before we meet in the studio? And I said, oh, yeah, that's absolutely fine. And uh, when she arrived, she was probably 25 to 30 years older than me, and uh, which meant we couldn't dance in the same category. And, uh, and we were chatting, and then she said, oh, she said, I just saw your profile. I wanted to dance with you. And I said, oh, why is that then? And she said, well, my son, who's basically your age, I used to love dancing with my son. We danced together every week, and it was really lovely. And then he got married, and we, we don't dance together anymore. And I wanted to dance with you so I could feel what it felt like to dance with my son. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the deep psychology of all of these things, all of these individual dancing partner relationships, there is so much more going on than just dancing. It runs really deep psychologically. So at that point, Lindsay said, well, why don't we do ballroom together? And I said, okay. And we tried it for a couple of years. And that was that. Because <laughs> I know you talk about how with dancing you kind of bear your vulnerabilities because so much of modern day society it's verbal communication but you know that expression that 80% of communication is typically non-verbal and I guess when you talk about dancing the animus in of us can tell you know possibly when a woman is menstruating and when they aren't menstruating and when they're fertile and when they're not and that's why it's like oh my god I just I'm so drawn there maybe there's just this animal thing and I wonder like you spoke about how I've heard you previously talk about how typically when couples dance and say they do the tango and the man's meant to lead, and if the dynamic of the relationship is the woman leads, it feels awkward. It's, it kind of almost dance offers this, this view into the dynamic of a relationship or how a person is or how they tend to exist in the world. Yeah, I mean, that whole thing about dancing and cooperation and, and feeling united is really interesting. I did a project many years ago working with couples using dance and looking at relationships in couples and there was one particular couple, I was teaching them, they, they'd been married, they'd been married for a very long time, they had grown up children. And I was teaching them the the Gay Gordon, you know, so a, a Kaylee dance. And together, they simply couldn't get the dance. They couldn't get the timing, they couldn't get, they were fighting over it. They were, there was a lot of agitation going on. And I thought, they were both blaming each other for not knowing the dance. And so I danced with the woman and she knew it perfectly. And I could do it with her perfectly. I danced with the man, he could do it perfectly, and we could dance it together perfectly. And there was just, just this dynamic that when they danced together, they wouldn't allow each other to lead and follow. You know, they wouldn't even accommodate each other's bodies in time with the music. There was self-sabotaging in their relationship. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. Now, of course, when you move with someone, there's a 
you know, when I moved with Lindsay, we have a connection and we don't have to speak very often. You know, we might be going through stressful times and we can hold one another, we can move together and we have an understanding of how each other feels and we accommodate each other's movements and those movements might be informed by the way we feel, what we're thinking and our emotions at that time. And some people want to fight against that movement all the time. They want to fight against the other person. And so finding that synchrony in terms of body movement can sometimes be much more powerful than using words because sometimes we we embody what we think and our the states of our relationship can also be embodied with the other person as we move with them. And that can be a good thing and it can be it can show where there's a, where there's some tensions. It can often be like some somatic experience as opposed to like CBT. CBT in terms of psychology is using thought and trying to manage our thought process where a somatic experience you're trying to use the body, what's stored in the body and dance almost offers offers an ability to to do that. Is that more what it's what kind of dance yeah. therapy is about? Well, I'm not a dance I'm not a dance therapist, but it, it is certainly the case that the body Yeah, it doesn't hide very much. You know, it's it's a pure version of communication, a pure interpretation of our thinking and our feeling. Yeah. Wow. Love yeah. it. So in terms of how can we get more dance into our society and into how do we, because like I hear you talk and I'm like, yes, we all need to dance more. And even this morning when I was, I was running up right ahead and I was listening to something that you were doing before. And even when I was running, I was trying to run as weird as I could and just as, as <laughs> fluidly and as diverse as possible. Because like when I do look at an, e or when, when you look at an ecosystem, the most resilient ecosystems are the most diverse. And similarly in terms of humans, I imagine the more we diversify our movement patterns, the more resilient we are in many different ways and the more our ability to create expands. So I wonder how can we as a society start to celebrate movement and diversity and dance and more, more give permission for this? How do we do this? I know that's a big question. It's a big question, but it's what we can start by thinking about is that we only move. I mean, there's old nonsense. It's it's not true, but there's somebody who said you only use a certain percentage of your brain. You know, but I know we know that that's not true, but we it is true that we only use a certain percentage of our movement profile you know, so to think about your movement profile and start expanding that. Do everyday activities and start using different movement patterns in, in your everyday activities of daily living. So if you normally, when you're making a cup of coffee, for instance, you know, how many different ways are there to take the cup out of the, out of the cupboard and then move it, oh, move around and then find where the sugar is. Oh, there's the sugar. And suddenly we're kind of making this kind of creative movement. And how many ways can you break the rules of movement? and break the rules of the way you normally do things. And thinking about that in your personal life, in your professional life, and walking down the street. And I think the greatest gift of all we can give people is giving them the freedom to move and giving them a new ways of moving. So try to make people smile as you walk down the street differently. Introduce movement into your workplace and think about your own restrictions on your movement and find out how many now these these movements could be might really might be really tiny it might be you know how can i move my finger in a in a new way in a way i've never moved my finger before it sounds trivial and then you think well how then do you move two fingers in a new way or three or then then your hand oh hello if you're going to put your hat on or take it off or put a scarf around you how could you just improve that movement profile yes please and, and get rid of this notion that you have to be good to be a dancer because you it's not about being good it's just about expressing your heartbeat you know we have this this notion of a um the startle reflex so you're, and your body is ah, and your body jumps as a startle reflex wouldn't it be great if we could make ourselves startled 
by all kinds of environmental factors. So, I mean, the classic would be the wind blowing through the trees or um, or the, 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 the train. You could hear the train synchronize with that, with other people. You're looking at other people. And rather than just, let's mention you walk faster than people, rather than just walking faster on one side, what if you weaved in between people? Or if you walk really slowly, let's imagine you walk really slowly and other people overtake you. And as they, you, you moved as a consequence of their movement. So it's that idea of finding other people's movement and uh, allowing yourself to synchronize to that or be influenced by it. There's something called sensory motor coupling. And the sensor, so sensory information comes into the, into the brain. And then the motor, the premotor cortex, you know, creates these motor patterns, um, which gives you an urge to move. A recent paper has recently found that the motor strip in the brain is punctuated by these areas for whole body movement, which stimulate cognitive processes and problem solving and goals and uh, all that wonderful thinking based stuff. So there's a relationship between the way our, our brain processes movement and it processes thinking as well. So try to work out how many different ways can you stimulate the different movement areas of your brain um, and allow it to synchronize with sensory information and a whole range of different sensory information. And that sensory information might even be food, the way that you take food into your mouth and chew it and think about it and let it go through your mouth. Um, what does that feel like to move your jaw in a different way when you're eating different textured foods? How can you do it? <laughs> I like that. It brings way more play. It brings a lot more aliveness and presence into your day, just even to be aware to how to move to your heartbeat differently. There you are. That's one way of putting it on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th there's one final thing which I just loved. I, I was just contemplating there about um, like rites and rituals and rites and passages. You know, previously dance was typically part of most celebrations. You look at tribal gatherings. There's dance. There's it's always part of some ceremony. And I wondered now that our society has got quite political and quite head rather than heart. And, you know, you said dancing is a way of expressing ourselves in the absolute honesty of it. And I wonder now that our societies have got quite complex and movement has become less and dance has become less, that we are more in our heads, that it's almost like we don't want to reveal the true essence of ourselves. We're secretly trying to hide it. And there isn't a question per se, but it's more, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. If we can get out of our heads and, and move more, wouldn't it just be wonderful? Um, I guess if we want to differentiate, uh, differentiate ourselves from something like chat GPT, then movement would be the key, wouldn't it? Because our movement is really makes us completely individual and that essence of movement. Individual movement profiles are like fingerprints. They are entirely unique. And wouldn't it be great if we were less like everybody else and more unique and we could show that uniqueness through our, our movement? Yeah, totally. Um, there's anyone, there's no education system that can crush that out of us. Yeah, totally agree. For anyone listener who goes, I'm not a dancer, I'm not into dancing, I don't dance, what do you say to them? Because there's many people that, are, especially even like anyone who grew up like like we did, who, you know, all boys, rugby, sport, only dance when I'm drunk. Uh, what do you say to those people? Because I'm sure that's the question you're asked most. I don't dance. Well, it depends. If they're not, if they, I would never force anyone to dance, right? So uh, there, there's, if you don't want to dance, don't, don't dance. It's your choice. Yeah, it's fine. But if you do dance, you will find things that are just extraordinary. When I learned to read, every book I read was like entering into a whole new world. It was a world I didn't know existed, which I loved that discovery. If you don't dance and you start moving your body, it's like opening a new book. You will find something else about yourself. It'll stimulate your body, your brain, your mind, your emotions 
in a different way. If you're worried about, if you think you can't dance, then I would say, like a lot of people say to me, like, I have no rhythm. I can't dance because I have no rhythm. And I say, no, that's not true because your heart beats in a rhythm. Your brain functions in a rhythm. You probably walk in a rhythmic way. You know, you're swinging your arms together rhythmically. If, if you're startled by something, you'll rhythmically jump as a startle reflex. So you do have rhythm. Everybody has rhythm. Often what people say is that they they don't feel... Well, when we ask people why they do and don't dance, we've thousands of people told us why they don't dance. And lots of the reasons they give are they don't feel competent enough. So they don't know what to do. They they, they intellectualize it more than they, they need to. Um, they don't feel that they're the right type of person, whatever, right? There's obviously some branding that's gone on that said, these types of people are the people who dance and everybody else doesn't dance, which is nonsense. So we need to get, get our heads out, out of that. Um, or they think they're too old to dance. Clearly, no one's ever too old to dance. Dancing is for all people, for all ages, and it brings complete joy. And we can help people find out what their what their barrier is. It might be a tension and anxiety thing. It might be a competency issue. Um, we can help people overcome that fear of dancing. Yeah, I like your expression. If you have a heartbeat, you got a rhythm or a brain. Like it's like if you're alive, you dance. It's it's in yeah. us. We are dance. Yeah, we are. And when you look at football and rugby and things, those are those sports are danced. Right. When you, when you look at it, you see people moving around. They're coordinating their movements together. They're, they're retreating. They're coming. They're going forwards. They're coming back. They're responding to each other. There's a call and response. It's very much like a dance when you watch people do those things. So really, sometimes it's just the word dance that people don't like rather than the, the shared movement activity. Yeah, agreed. And you've been doing lots of work in terms of dance and Parkinson. So actually how it affects our physiology and our ability to retain memory yeah so the dance and parkinson's disease as you'll as you'll know is a, a neurodegenerative disorder which leads to a range of symptoms and some of those symptoms are movement based and some are not there are over 40 symptoms of parkinson's disease and not everybody with parkinson's has all 40 symptoms they have a reaction each so everyone's very unique some research um back in 2005 six, seven, found that when people with parkinson's engaged in recreational dance it led to an improvement in some of their clinical symptoms. And when myself and my neuroscience colleagues looked at this, we thought, well, that's rubbish. How could it be the case that taking half a dozen tango dancing classes could improve the, the symptoms of a neurodegenerative disorder like Parkinson's? So we set up a lab and we wanted to examine that. And when we did, we found it was indeed the case that when people with Parkinson's engaged in recreational dance, it led to an improvement in their symptoms. Now, not only did it lead to an improvement in their physical symptoms, so their balance improved, their walking speed improved, their fear of falling reduced, but also it led to some cognitive changes. So it led to changes in terms of their thinking and problem solving, and it led to changes in their quality of life. So when we were looking at the research so around people with Parkinson's and these the, the symptom changes as a consequence of dancing, we were astounded to find that the act of dancing leads to these clinically significant, clinically relevant improvements in people's well-being, physical, cognitive, and emotional. And then we took that from there, and then we started applying it outside of people with Parkinson's, trying to see whether that would also be the case in, in the non-Parkinson's world. So then we went into schools to see whether, if we introduce movement into classrooms, how does that change the way people learn and engage with material? And we took it into offices as well to see you know, how if we brought movement into an office environment, 
or to a call center environment or to an executive team working on a problem solving thing? How could that movement improve the functioning and processing of those people? How can it improve their social connection, their cognitive behavior, and all of those other things? And we found that it did. So yeah, there's a lot of benefit. And of course, in some ways, dance had been seen as a very kind of peripheral, arty, low-value activity in the healthcare setting. And I think what people are seeing now, particularly with the with the emergence of stronger and stronger research evidence, is that actually moving your body has a profound impact on your brain and on your emotions. And that can be used and targeted to improve a whole range of areas of people's well-being. Brilliant. Here, mic, here. Mic drop. Yeah, I think it was beautiful. Here, here. I think your work's amazing. And you've written a best-selling book and you do talks all around the world. The dance cure. And you're just inspiring um, many, really? many to get moving. Well, we're trying. So, yeah, so the book, The, the Dance Cure, I, I'm very lucky to be invited around the world to give talks at all kinds of events um, in, corporate, in the corporate world. And we've got a program with a dancer called Darcy Bustle called Move Ashore, Dance for Mental Wellbeing which is a, a 20 week dance for mental well-being program, which is fantastic in, a, in an employee well-being setting. So yeah, so we're trying to, to tr change and introduce movement into the world in lots of different ways. Almost mm. like give people permission to move in different ways and in different environments, like your boogie box idea, which I think is deadly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant, really, really brilliant. Yeah, really congrats on all you're doing. I really, really admire everything you're doing. I appreciate it so much personally. I really, really do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. And next time you're over, come visit when you're over in Ireland because you're brilliant. I think we we'd love to. We'd love yeah. to. If you ever want to come move, we can dance into the sea. We swim in the sea in the morning and we could <gasps> dance in the farm. We've got a, a wonderful farm and yeah, and a good wow. world of food. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, lovely. Lovely to meet you guys. And uh, yeah, thank you. Cheers, Peter. You're a star. Really, really appreciate it. That was great fun. What a wonderful human. Like it, it's the first time where I've been watching someone talk and dance at the same time and being quite transfixed at times kind of going, wow, look at the way he's moving. Oh yeah, I must get back to what he's saying. I find it so fascinating, the fact that it's such a, an honest expression, dances, and like it's such a pure expression of who we are and uh, that bit really And even the non-verbal stuff, like the fact that like, he, like at almost like a physiological level, like someone could tell that like a woman is like menstruating or not in terms of how they dance and in terms of like the pheromones and that. It's yeah, like, that the, the, the mating bit was fa fascinating. But uh, yeah, big takeaways I think for me are just about movement and thinking laterally about movement. And like we are definitely, um, we move in all sorts of different ways and I think I would just want to lean deeper into it. And obviously dance is just a word for moving in different ways to rhythmic fashion. Yeah, because even ourselves, we used to do Ashtanga yoga for about 15 years and it was wonderful and flexible in so many ways, but really rigid in terms of its its movement patterns. And it's only in recent years, maybe in the last five, 10 years, we've been focused on a lot more variety. Yeah, and it really does encourage movement. more fluidity and variety. Yeah, so I hope yeah. you really enjoyed that and uh, do check him out. You know, Dr. Oh, what Dance. a wonderful man. Peter Lovett. And, and check out, if you ever get to see him do his talks, he literally gets the whole audience up dancing and it's hilarious. And he's just like, whew, yeah, like the Pied Piper. Yeah. So yeah, thanks Mel for your attention. We really, really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, we've got more than a hundred other ones. So do check them out. And the best way for you to support this podcast is to share it with others or leave a five-star review on Apple or Google or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or thanks Mel. I'm wishing you a wonderful day. Bye. 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 bye, 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 bye.